Well, good morning. Thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this morning, I'm very excited to introduce our new sermon series through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, I'm a graduate of the Master's Seminary, and it's often been observed that most graduates from the Master's Seminary, when they graduate and go out into a church, the first thing they preach is one of Paul's letters. And I've made it nine and a half years here without preaching any of Paul's letters, and I have friends who are making fun of me for it. They can't believe, I have friends from, who are graduates of the Master's Seminary that can't believe it's taken me this long to get around to one of Paul's letters, but I'm thankful in God's providence for the way that things have worked out, and particularly that uh, the book that I get to preach is Ephesians, and the reason why is because Ephesians is my favorite of Paul's letters. It combines rich theology with some of the most practical advice you will find anywhere in the New Testament. But before I introduce it to you, please bow with me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as I attempt to introduce your people to the big picture of Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to see the glory of your plan of redemption and the riches of your grace towards us and the hope they have through Christ. Give them illumination for your glory and their joy, I pray. Amen. So the Apostle Paul went to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, he went there on his first missionary journey and established a church there. Uh, on his third journey, he returned there and actually stayed for three years to do ministry there and actually used it during those three years as a base of operations to reach the rest of what today we think of as modern-day Turkey. In fact, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to say it, uh, in fact, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that as Paul ministered there in Ephesus, all of Asia Minor heard the gospel, and the reason why was because believers went out with Paul's message into the surrounding villages and towns outside of Ephesus, and word spread as he used Ephesus as a base of operations. And those three years that he was there, those three strategic years that Paul was there, uh, were the uh, fall of 52 until the summer of A.D. 55. And then six years later, during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. And we, uh, this is one of four of Paul's letters that we call the prison epistles. Epistle is just a word for a letter that descends into English from Greek, and I understand that for us it sounds like old English at this point. So, I'm going to try my best to refer to it as a letter, uh, even though uh, I'm, I'm used to calling it an epistle. Uh, it's a letter, uh, and Paul. this is one of the letters Paul wrote while he was imprisoned, and he's actually going to talk about, we're going to see today, him talk about this imprisonment uh, and how it relates to the Ephesians. Now, the main thing that an introduction to any book of the Bible should do is answer the question, what is the primary purpose of this book? What is the primary purpose uh, or message, I should say, of this letter? What is Ephesians about? And my answer is this, Ephesians is about God's eternal plan and your life. Uh, this is about His eternal plan of redemption and how it relates to your life 
in the here and now. And the fact is this, God has an eternal plan of redemption that's for your good and for His glory that has been secured for you by His grace. History past and what's happening in the present and what's happening in your personal life now and what will happen in the future, none of it is an accident. This is all part of God's plan as He providentially guides history, especially the history of redemption. God has a plan. And yes, I, I, I need to admit this for a, a modern audience, yes, God's plan does allow temporarily within limits some pain and suffering and evil to exist for a time, but there is a day coming when He will wipe all of that out and create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And He has a plan to redeem a people for Himself and reconcile a people for Himself, and He will bring that perfect plan to completion in His all-wise timing. And Ephesians explains how that plan relates to your life and mine in the here and now. Now, structurally, and you can see this in the bulletin for those of you who take notes, structurally you can divide Ephesians into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 are about God's eternal plan of redemption. Chapters 4 through 6 are about how that plan relates to your life. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with indicative verbs that are statements of fact about who God is and what He's doing in the world. Chapters 4 through 6 are filled with imperative verbs of command that give you direction in very nitty-gritty detail about how you should live your life in light of God's plan. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with rich theology. Chapters 4 through 6 are filled with timely counsel and direction for how to live the one life we have to live for our Lord. Chapters 1 through 3 are God's eternal plan explained by the Apostle Paul. Chapters 4 through 6 are God's eternal plan applied, which leads very early in the message to our first application point. There is something to be learned from the way that Paul lays out and arranges this letter to the church. He starts with doctrine first, and then he moves to practice. Why? Because the practice finds its rationale and motive in the good doctrine. The good doctrine lays a foundation in chapters 1 through 3 for the good practice that Paul instructs us in in chapters 4 through 6. So, think of it like a house, right? Um, if you jump straight to the how-tos and the relational advice and how to have a better marriage and how to be a better parent, which are all important topics, by the way. I'm not saying they're unimportant. But if you jump straight to those and miss the doctrinal foundation for those things, it's like having a beautiful home with really good interior decorating, but that doesn't have a foundation, and eventually the house collapses, right? The, the correct order is doctrine first, then practice, because the good practice is built on the solid foundation of doctrine. Now, since Ephesians is six chapters long, I want to do something radical in my introduction. I decided early on this last week, it's only six chapters, I want to try and read the whole thing, but not in one setting. I want to try and read to you a paragraph at a time, say a few words about it, but then try to show how all the bigger paragraphs fit together. And I figured out pretty quickly that such a sermon would be far too long. 
So we're going to split it into two parts. I'm going to do chapters one through three and really try to show how the bigger paragraphs relate to one another this week. And then, Lord willing, I'll do chapters four through six uh, next week. So that's how we're going to introduce the book. Um, And it's important to me to read it because I really want you to see for yourself what Paul says to the church. Let's begin uh, our journey by reading in Ephesians chapter one. I'm going to read from verse one all the way down through verse 14 for our first reading. In uh, Ephesians 1.1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Excuse me, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In Him... Also, we have obtained an inheritance which has been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise." who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. After giving an initial greeting, Paul then gives uh, a doxology of praise to God that runs in Greek, it runs all the way from verse 3 to verse 14 and is one ginormous sentence. We break it up with periods, but it's really one long sentence sentence in Greek. And the theme of this one long sentence is explaining God's eternally planned and performed grace in salvation, a salvation that He has accomplished for the good of His people and for the joy of His people and also to show off His glory, particularly the glory of His grace and kindness and mercy in salvation. God's people, whom He has chosen in eternity past, adopted as His own sons and daughters, and given every spiritual blessing to, we receive the riches of His grace, and in turn, He receives all the glory. And the aim of Him structuring salvation for His glory, it's unmistakable in this paragraph. Uh, uh, All of God's planning and acting in the history of salvation has the purpose of His glory. You can see it in verse 6. It's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Now, in this doxology, 
Paul does something very interesting. He explains the role that each member of the Trinity played in carrying out this great eternal plan. And this list is not an exhaustive list of the various things each member of the Trinity does, but it is a representative list of how they each work in the plan of salvation. In verses 4 through 6, you see the role of the Father. He chose us before the foundation of the world and predestined us to adoption as His own sons and daughters. In verses 7 through 12, you see the role of God the Son. God the Son carried out the plan by purchasing forgiveness from sins by His sacrificial death on the cross, verse 7. And then in verses 8 and 9, He has also become our teacher, making known to us the will of God the Father. Then in verses 11 and 12, He is the one who has become the guarantor of our eternal inheritance. And then in verses 13 and 14, you see the role of the Holy Spirit. While we were still hostile to God, the Holy Spirit came to us and brought us to salvation. We know from other passages in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin and draws people to repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, then, is the one who applies the work of redemption Christ purchased on the cross. The Holy Spirit takes that and applies that to our hearts by faith and also helps us to understand what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. And then verse 13, what the Holy Spirit does, His work results, verse 13, in our sealing. He seals us, and then the Holy Spirit, verse 14, also becomes the pledge of our inheritance. That is uh, uh, an old Greek way from the first century of saying that the Holy Spirit is our down payment. He's a down payment of our inheritance. Uh, the Holy Spirit, like a down payment that we have now in transactions, financial transactions in the contemporary world, the Holy Spirit is a good faith gesture of God's commitment to give us everything that we will inherit eternally through the work of the Son. And so, those are the roles that each member of the Trinity plays in this great plan of salvation. The Father is the one who set the plan and chose us from eternity past. The Son accomplished the plan by His death and has now become our primary teacher and leader in the Christian life. We follow Him. We follow His teaching. We follow His example. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who has sealed us and become a down payment on our future inheritance. Now, after telling the Ephesians about this wonderful plan God has for us, Paul then, as an apostle, lets, him, lets the church in on how he prays for them. And I think it's just fascinating. Have you ever wanted to know, well, what did the apostles pray? Like, what were their prayers like? And what did they pray for the churches they cared about? Well, you have an example right here. Paul is going to be transparent with the Ephesians. He's going to tell them how he prays for them and what he prays for them about. And I find it, as a pastor, absolutely fascinating. Look at verse 15. For this reason, I too... Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray 
that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave, gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all." So, Paul knew this church. He had lived among them, but now it's been uh, over six years uh, since he's been with them. But during those six years, he's kept up with the news about them, right? There's always people coming and go. Paul would send out messengers. He would receive letters. He would receive reports. And so, Paul has kept up with the church, and he gives thanks to God for them. But he also lets them know what his prayer request is for them. And I find this absolutely stunning. He doesn't pray that God would cause them to do anything. Right? Now, later on in the letter, he'll give instruction on how to live the Christian life, but his prayer request, his primary important prayer request is not that they'll do anything. It's that they'll know something. What he prays for is that God would open the eyes of their hearts to comprehend the hope of their salvation, the glory of their eternal inheritance, and the greatness of God's power to save and deliver on the promised inheritance to them. So, what's most important to Paul in Ephesians uh, and, and what's most important to Paul in our lives now who read this letter as followers of Jesus, the most important thing is that we would understand and be moved emotionally by the sweeping power and glory of God's kindness to us in His plan of redemption. Yes, Paul does want the Ephesians know how to live. There are some things he wants them to do in obedience to God's commands and growth in holiness, but the most important thing is understanding and being enchanted by, captivated by, uh, dare I say, enamored with God's plan of redemption, a plan, by the way, that having been understood and received with joy makes obedience to God and love for other Christians uh, all the more uh, logical and obvious. And so, Paul lets them know, I'm crying out to God for you, Lord, open the eyes of their hearts so that they would know your love for them and the riches of the inheritance you've given them. Help them to get it and be moved by it and transformed in light of it, which leads now to our second application in the sermon. Remember that Paul was writing to a genuine uh, Christian audience. These are truly saved Christian people. Paul doesn't seem to be concerned that the church is full of self-deceived people. He's writing to genuine Christians, and yet he has to pray that the eyes of Christians would be, the eyes of the hearts of Christians would be enlightened to uh, see and understand and be enchanted by God's great plan of salvation. And I think there's a lesson there for us, right? You write this kind of theology, like Paul did in this letter, or you, you write a, a Christian book about it, or 
in my case, I'm trying to preach it from the pulpit, and it's typical for Christians to yawn. I mean, we're tired, we're distracted by other things. I mean, I was even thinking about in my own life this week, what are other things that enchant, enchant me, right? What are other things I'm taken by? I mean, there is a sense in which I'm enamored with the plan, the plan of the NFL that they've created with a view to an administration suitable to the times of summing up the whole season by crowning one team as champion, a mystery that will be revealed to all of us on February 12th, right? Like, that's the plan I'm enamored by. I'm, I'm enamored by the NFL's plan. And, and so, uh, here's, the, here's the, the application. Without prayer, even genuine Christians aren't always captivated by the riches of God's grace to us in the plan of salvation. And so, pray for yourself, pray for your own heart, and pray for the hearts of those you love to see God's plan for what it is and to rejoice in the hope of their calling and to take seriously the inheritance they're going to receive in the future and to be transformed by that plan. We need prayer. In fact, I was just thinking uh, as I was preparing this, I, uh, it's typical for me when I preach uh, to come up here and open my Bible and get out my manuscript and try to have an introduction, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't pray. I don't open the ser- sermon with a prayer. But it seems to me what Paul is saying here is, yeah, but people aren't going to get it without prayer. You have to ask God to open the eyes, even of the genuine Christians that are listening to you. And so, I think a good application for us, beloved, is pray for yourself and pray for those you love, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to God's love for them in redemption. Well, after sharing this uh, prayer that Paul has for them in light of God's eternal plan, Paul then turns in chapter 2 to talk about one very specific aspect of this plan, and that is how the plan puts on display God's grace towards us. You see, all of us are rebels against God. We've broken His law over and over and over again, took pleasure in it, and planned how we can do it again next time. I mean, we're, we're just neck deep in rebellion and sin against God. We don't deserve to be adopted into His family. We don't deserve to be forgiven for our sins. We don't deserve the sacrifice Christ made for us on the cross. We don't deserve receiving the Holy Spirit as a, a pledge of our future inheritance. But it's not just that we don't deserve any of it. It's that when this salvation came to us, we were hopeless. We were in an absolutely hopeless condition, and that's what Paul uses as the backdrop, our hopelessness, to understand the grace of God that came to us in our salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the desires of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In these verses, Paul gets very personal with a predominantly Gentile audience, uh, much like our church. Uh, the church in Ephesus was predominantly a Gentile church. And uh, what Paul does as he, is he looks at our salvation as Gentiles from the uh, personal perspective through the lens of God's grace. So, not only is our adoption by God and our coming inheritance undeserved, it came to us while we were hopeless, and it highlights God's grace to us. We were dead in rebellion and sin, with no ability to respond positively to God. We, you could say it this way, we were biologically alive, but spiritually dead. We lived in solidarity with and walked in lockstep with God's enemies. And not only did we walk in lockstep with them, we, we walked in solidarity with the, the sinful desires of our flesh, and we were by nature children destined for the wrath of God. But God intervened because of His great love for us, and He made us spiritually alive. He raised us from our spiritual deadness. By His grace, He saved us through faith, and it's a kind of faith through which He saved us that isn't a faith that we have practiced independent of Him. It is a faith, verse 8, not of our own, but a gift given to us by Him. The result then is a salvation from our sins that is not the result of our own works or our own doing. Um, it's not because we've practiced a faith independent of and decisively chosen by us. It's a gift He gave us. So that, verse 9, no, not one of us could boast. God has structured the plan of salvation in such a way that we're rescued from our hopeless uh, condition and we're given eternal joy, but it is structured in such a way that excludes all boasting. There are no bragging rights in heaven for any of us. Or, well, there's no bragging rights in heaven except God's bragging rights. He gets all of them, we get none. That's the way that this equation works. And so, what, what you see here, then, is there's a salvation for us that's all by His grace. We receive the forgiveness. We receive the cleansing. We receive the inheritance. He receives all the glory. Uh, and it's even underlined by verse 10, which is one of my favorite verses in Ephesians. We are not spiritually self-made men and women. We are His workmanship. He's the one who created us both physically and spiritually, and He has prepared good works for us to walk in. And so, that's Paul's message looking in a very personal way through the lens of our hopelessness and God's grace to a Gentile audience. But then in chapter 2, verse 11, he shifts to focus on the salvation experience of Gentiles as a group of people. Uh, which again fits our church because we're predominantly a Gentile church. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that He Himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to those of you who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through Him, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple to the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, when God resurrected your spiritually dead soul and gave you the gift of faith, it's important to note that He didn't call you to the lonely task of having to follow Him alone. He put you in a family. Uh, he put you in His spiritual family, in His household. Now, the majority of us in here are Gentiles. We're not part of God's chosen people, Israel. Uh, but when we came to Christ, uh, before we came to Christ, we were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We were complete strangers to Moses and the other prophets. We had no hope and we're without God in the world. But when Christ saved us, we ceased to be foreigners and became citizens of God's chosen people in the church. The church is a new institution in God's plan whereby Jews and Gentiles are put together uh, in one body and have equal spiritual status, equal access to the Father, equal spiritual standing and we're brought into unity with the rest of God's people, regardless of ethnicity or race or background. And having introduced that concept of Gentiles now being included with the Jews as God's chosen people in the church, he really goes to town on what the church is about in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, uh, that's referring to his imprisonment, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you will understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, uh, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, based on all of this, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So, in the current age of redemption, the primary institution through which God is working is the church. And he, Paul refers here to the church as a mystery that was previously not revealed to any of the sons of men. Here's what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, you can find over 300 prophecies about the Lord's Messiah. You can find over 300 prophecies about the Savior God would send into the world. However, you can't find one prophecy about the church, not even something that looks like a little clue, nothing. You will find nothing in the Old Covenant, in uh, Moses or the wisdom literature or the prophets about the church. Uh, it's clear in the Old Testament, yes, that God has a heart for the Gentiles and not just the Jewish people. Uh, I think that's one of the things we saw when we were going through Isaiah, that God doesn't just love the Jewish people. He had a heart in the Old Testament for Ninevites and uh, Moabites and Babylonians, right? He saved people from other nations. God had a heart for uh, the Gentile people. But uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's no clue that God would do away with the Aaronic priesthood and the temple and have this new entity, the local church, spread out among the nations where Jews and Gentiles are brought together to worship the Lord and do life together. You have no clue about that. And that's why, that's how he's using the word mystery. He's not exactly using the word mystery in the way we use it. He's using it to signify something that was previously unrevealed that God has now revealed in the new covenant. And this whole new thing He's made puts on display His variegated, multicolored, uh, dare I say, multivalent glory and wisdom in setting it up this way. That's put on display in the present age. And that display is not just for the walk watching world. Uh, you see that it's primarily for uh, powerful angelic beings to see God's wisdom in setting up the church this way. Now, this truth about the church is important to grasp. Uh, it's good teaching on Paul's part. I believe this entire section is wonderful for understanding God's purpose in the church. But also, I think this whole paragraph is actually an interlude where Paul has, uh, he's, he's giving a parenthesis and a side in how he prays for them and in uh, God's grace on display in our salvation. And the whole point of the interlude is this, verse 13, therefore I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulation, at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. In other words, don't let my imprisonment discourage you. I know you're all very concerned about my imprisonment. I know you're praying for me to be acquitted and freed. Uh, I know you're concerned about, you know, what's going on here, but don't be discouraged about it. 
It's all part of the plan, right? God has a plan. Christ is Lord of the church. He has a plan for his apostles. I know this is according to God's plan. It gives me access to preach the gospel to Roman authorities I wouldn't have access to unless I was imprisoned. Uh, fruitful labor is still going on, like this letter that I've written to you and sent to you through Tychicus. Uh, so don't get discouraged in my imprisonment. It's all part of the plan, and there is a way in which it's actually for your good and for your glory. And then after that interlude, Paul gives them more insight into how he prays for them. We get a second prayer, uh, like that first prayer back in chapter 1, and it's in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, now and forever. Amen. This second prayer is very similar to the first prayer in that Paul does not ask God to help or give the grace or make the Ephesian church do or perform anything, right? In the first prayer, you remember that he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened to see the surpassing kindness and love and grace of God to us in salvation. But now he prays for them, verse 19, that they would experience a kind of knowledge that surpasses knowing. You have to admit, that's a unique kind of knowing, right? I mean, he uses, I find opening the eyes of someone's heart, your heart, your spiritual heart has eyes, and a knowing that surpasses knowledge, that's provocative language. That's a kind of knowing that is cognitive. Yes, we can talk about the ways that Jesus has made His love manifest for us, but this is a kind of knowing that goes beyond even that. It's, a, it's like a, an experiential, intuitive knowledge that you know deep down in your bones, uh, in the core of your being, about the love Christ has for you. And then he finishes the section, verses 20 and 21, by pointing to God's glory again. It's a, it's a doxology of praise in those last two verses, sort of like the doxology of praise he gave in verses 3 through 14. So those are the first three chapters, and as I've labored to understand them, uh, there's an observation that stands out that I want to share with you, and that is this. In the first three chapters, there is only one command. Uh, that's pretty unusual, especially from an apostle. Three whole chapters, only one command. It's the command in chapter 2, verse 11, for those of us who are Gentiles to remember how we were without hope and without God in the world, and we were, uh, uh, we were foreigners and aliens to the covenants of promise God gave His people Israel. But that's the only command. The rest of it on Paul's part is a prayer to God that the eyes of our hearts would be open to the greatness of God's eternal plan. Now, my goal in this introduction is to help you see the big picture of Ephesians. I want you to see the panoramic view 
and not get lost in the sentences and clauses of the individual trees that make up the forest. That's what I'm trying to do. And I want to show you how I think these first six paragraphs all fit together. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll clean this up and put it in the bulletin next week. So if you're someone who likes to take notes, don't worry about it. I'll print it next week. Uh, I believe uh, this is my summary of the first three chapters of Ephesians as if spoken by Paul himself. Number one, God has an eternal plan for your joy and His glory that I praise Him for. And my prayer for you is that He would open the eyes of your heart to see it and be captivated by it. It's a plan in which God's grace rescued us while we were still hopeless and secured our eternal joy in such a way that it does exclude our boasting. This plan has united Gentiles both to God and to God's chosen people, Israel. Interlude, my imprisonment is for God's glory in the church, so don't be discouraged by it. I pray that you would know, with a knowledge that surpasses just knowing, the depth of Christ's love for you. I believe that sums up the main point of the first three chapters. So, what are applications that we can take away from studying uh, the first three chapters as a whole? Well, first of all, first one, study biblical doctrine with a view to understanding who God is and what He's doing in the world. It is tempting to skip straight to the uh, wise advice for Christian living in, verses, uh, in, in chapters 4 through 6, but if you skip the doctrine, you'll miss the foundation for and logic and rationale behind why we live the way we live. According to Paul, in this letter, according to his argumentation, you can't properly do until you know. And so our goal as Christians, we need to be reminded of this, our goal as Christians is not just doing the right thing, it's doing the right things for all the right reasons. And that's the foundation the doctrine gives you. Don't skip ahead to chapters 4 through 6. Give chapters 1 through 3 their due and give other chapters like them that you find in other books in Scripture their due as well. Number two, pray for illumination. Pray for God the Father to open the eyes of your heart. Pray for Him to open the eyes uh, of the people you love. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you the gift of knowing with a knowledge that surpasses knowing how much Christ has loved you. Uh, make that your prayer request for your fellow believers uh, this week. And then number three, don't forget that your life is connected and is part of, really, God's eternal plan. You are connected to a much larger, grander story than the life stories that most of us choose for ourselves. Your career, your romantic life, your family, uh, the various uh, artistic uh, forms of expression that you enjoy, the leisure activities you're engaged in, those are all important but they pale in comparison to God's sweeping, dramatic story of redemption. Don't lose sight of that, or you'll fritter away the one life you have to invest for God's kingdom in the wrong ways. Or to put it another way, uh, Paul gave a sermon on his first missionary journey. He, he went into the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, and there it was primarily Jews, but there were some God-fearing Greek converts to Judaism who were in the synagogue as well. And in the middle of his sermon, he gave them a history 
of the people of Israel, and, and the whole point of the history is it's working up to a point Paul wants to make in his sermon. But in the middle of the sermon, Paul summarizes King David's life this way, Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served, the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep. That is the story of your life and mine. That's why we're still here. Having reconciled us to himself, God now has good works he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in in our generation, Ephesians 2.10. Paul told the church in Corinth that Christ died once for all so that those of us who live would no longer live the life we want for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So as you pray for illumination, and as you study biblical doctrine, remember, your life is connected to a grander story, God's grand story of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this magnificent letter that the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write. We thank you for the way that it reminds us of your great eternal plan. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand it. Help us to experience the love of Christ for us in a way that surpasses knowing. Give us the grace to eagerly perform the good works you've prepared beforehand for us. And help us to serve your purpose in our generation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.